It's three concentric circles that are converging. The new religion, the alien threat, and the post-human paradigm, which is transhumanism and those technologies. All three of those things are converging together. And when they come together, the result is going to be a new golden age in which the gods walk among men and lead mankind into open kinetic war with the king and his armies, the king of heaven. The king of heaven. Welcome to Blurry Creatures Podcast, the podcast about giants, Nephilim, Bigfoot, all the fun stuff. The fun stuff that maybe your pastor doesn't want to talk about, maybe your wife doesn't want to talk about, maybe your husband doesn't want to talk about, but we talk about it, and we have a good time, and we filter it all through the biblical paradigm. So, if this is your first episode, you're diving in. This is Tim Alberino. He's written a book called Birthright. We talk about it a bunch on this podcast, so maybe go back and listen to some of the other episodes, but if not, hop on in. Because we do a pretty good job at this episode of giving you context to previous conversations. But Tim's a great guy. We did his conference here in Nashville. And we can't say enough good things about Tim. He's a real deal. And he's just a good dude. So, blurrycreatures.com slash members if you want to sponsor this show and get bonus content. We got some bonus episodes coming out this week. And that's how we do it here at Blurry Creatures become a member of the show and get all kinds of access to uh, exclusive chat rooms, members chats, Discord, Facebook, Telegram, all the good stuff. So blurrycreatures.com slash members. You also get unreleased episodes and we try to chat with you guys as much as possible in the behind the scenes. Thank you for everyone who's sharing our show on social media. If you're not following us on social media, we're at Blurry Creatures on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram and TikTok. So find us on your favorite social media site. Say hi. Send us a message and keep sharing it around. You guys are amazing. Last week we hit number 55 on the charts in the United States, which is just mind-blowing to get all the way up there with all these great podcasts. So thank you for those who listen to this podcast and share it around. If this is your first time. Welcome. Hope you like it. All right, let's get Tim on the show. The history of our Earth is so different from what we can imagine. Enjoy the journey. The Smithsonian, that if they found out about a large skeleton somewhere, was to go get it. I'm going to assume at least one person is right, because if one person's right, it busts the paradigm. It all goes back to the fallen chair. And the problem with the modern-day church, they have a very truncated view of the supernatural. This backdrop that's just pregnant with all kinds of meaning associated with this Mount Hermon event. And this guy defects from the kingdom. That's a big deal. 
welcome back to the show. Obviously, you know, you're those listening to this podcast have you know who Tim is. And if you don't know who Tim is, come on, what's wrong with you? Go back and listen to the good the good ones and we hope to bring you another another mind bender. We've done your conference, we've hung out in the flesh, we text memes sometimes. We love it. Yeah, we do. <laughs> We've, we, I feel like, you know, Tim, we've become friends, and that's that, that means more to me than anything else we're doing on this podcast because it feels like I've found my people. I've found cool cool folks like-minded, and we're all helping each other, and we're all devoted to trying to figure out what's going on in our world and the truth. So thanks for coming back on our show. Thanks for promoting us to all your fans, and just can't say thanks enough. You've been super generous and with your time and your audience. So thanks, Tim. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me once again. Yeah. yeah, it's great to have you back. So. And yeah, as, dude, I would just echo what Nate says. And you know, your family's been great to my family as well. And I think that it's cool. It's cool to to get to unwrap some of the mysteries of, of the world and life with people that see things differently, and but different in the same way. And so we're excited to have you back. And, you know, we, a little bit on the pre-roll, you were saying that, you know, today's episode was, was something we, we talked about offhandedly, I, I believe, in our last episode, just about some things in your book, as you said, that, that don't get as much coverage, even though they're, you believe to be highly, highly controversial. So we're excited to do that and have you just walk us into the... Uh, the next religion. The next, the next religion. Well, I have world. to, I have to give a shout out to Jasmine too, Tim, because she's, she was pumping us on Facebook today. So not only is Tim pumping our, our show, even your wife's pumping the show. So she loves the show. That's what I was saying with family. Is that Jasmine's been great to my wife as we've gone through our, oh, our whole baby thing. Yeah, it's oh, okay, cool. So we love the Albarinos as a whole. Everybody loves the Albarinos. Mm. I know. You guys or hates to, them. We're gonna <laughs> do no a, in between. Well, it's not it's not '80s, but we'll do a, a Brady Bunch meme for you. Well, <laughs> you know, and I gotta know next time you're going to get some uh, some creatine or some pre workout. If you see another UFO, we have to have you yeah. back for that. That's just, right. Just pumping iron. Is that how Enoch left Earth? He just walked into a UFO and took off. That's what the fans want to know. Is that what you think? You know, I'm not sure that Enoch ever did leave Earth. Just walked through a portal. We assume he was taken to heaven, but that's not necessarily presumed in the text that he might have been taken somewhere else on earth just sort of hidden away so elijah then would be the only guy that we know and i'm not sure that elijah was necessarily taken heaven either where did i get this from you just started us uh it's it's an assumption it's a widely held assumption in, Mm. in regards to enoch that he was taken to heaven but the problem is when you read the fragments of the book of the of the book of giants which was found among the dead sea scrolls there's an interesting story in there regarding a particular giant. It's highly fragmented, so there's not much to read. But there's a, a giant named Manway. And uh, Manway is, keeps having this disturbing dream of a tablet with many names on it that's being dipped in water. And when it, it's submerged in water, and when it emerges, it only has eight names left on it, which is, of course, an allusion to the flood. And Noah and his family. And so Manway is very disturbed by this dream. And he goes and he seeks out Enoch. And Enoch is hidden away. And Manway has to try and find him. And so Enoch is, is living in seclusion and is difficult to communicate with because he's sort of he's hidden away. He's like a hermit at this point. And Manway goes and, and finds him. Interestingly, it appears that Manway flies to try and uh, to reach Enoch, which would insinuate technology. And, and eventually he does find Enoch and Enoch interprets a dream. So there is 
some speculation that Enoch was not taken to heaven, but rather taken and secluded and basically lived like a hermit for whatever reason. Mm. That's a good point. I mean, because, yeah, it does, it does say that, that, that God took him. And, and as I'm kind of just doing a little search here, the Greek word actually just means taken away or to transfer to another place. Not necessarily. It's fascinating because I, I think that is that tradition, right, that that they were just taken to heaven. But it's... Yeah, in the book of Enoch, he's called scribe of righteousness is the way that the angels refer to him and with whom he's interacting. And so we might assume that he was taken away in order to record the things that he wrote, allegedly, in the book of Enoch, right? So he might have been taken away to live as a hermit in some secluded place, protected from the entities that were roaming the earth and cared for by God in order to complete his manuscript. Mm-hmm. And then we can assume that he died. Remember that the Bible says it is appointed for men to die, for all men to die once, and then the judgment. And yeah, then Hebrews Hebrews says these all died in faith, not having received the promises, right? And it says these That's right. all so, have died. Yeah. It's my it's my opinion that both Enoch and Elijah died. Dude, we're just break. Hey, we're just breaking through ceilings. How many minutes in are we here? Two minutes in. Well, there's a lot of scholars who share that opinion as well. That's not a controversy, really. I mean, there's people on both. You can make an argument on both sides of the fence, but I, I'm pretty sure Enoch and Elijah both died. They were just taken away uh, for some purpose, and and removed from their interaction with. In, in Enoch's case, with the sons of Adam, the line of Seth, and in Elijah's case, the the Israelites, hmm. the king and the king of Israel, and and the political scene in Israel. So, but again, maybe maybe they did go were taken away off yeah. the earth, you know, removed off the earth. You know, during before the flood happens, could have some of these giants just gone through portals and then and that's how they came back? They just walk through some sort of stargate and then they come back after the flood. I mean, I, I don't think we've talked about that on the show, Luke. Like we've talked about more the physical phenomenon of the giants dying in the flood, but I never thought, couldn't they just step through and then come back? Would that work? I don't know. You know, there's there's just too much that we don't know about a portal. Talking about a portal is like talking about an extra dimension. We've never seen one. Right. Uh, according to the, according to Einstein's equations, it would it would take an enormous amount of energy to open what's called an an, an Einstein Rosen bridge, a wormhole, a yeah. portal, a stargate, yeah. and we don't have that. We don't have anything that can even come close to producing that kind of energy on Earth. But there may be a different way to open a portal that is not based on conventional physics. But 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 this is all science fiction, really. I personally believe that Einstein Rosen bridges exist, that you can traverse space almost instantaneously, let's say from the Earth to Mars, through a, an Einstein Rosen bridge or some other kind of portal. So I absolutely believe that portals exist, but you know that that that's as much as I can say is I believe they exist, but how they work, how they're created, might they have been used in the pre-flood world? I think it's safe to assume that the watchers arrived on the summit of Hermon through some kind of a stargate. Mm-hmm. Uh, I do not believe that that these entities we call angels or that are called angels in, in the biblical text are jumping in some kind of a spaceship and literally flying from here to some other planet. I think they are jumping space, mm-hmm. jumping space through the agency of a 
advanced aerospace vehicle. Mm. So using technology to do it, they're not flapping wings like birds. And there's no reason to believe, as we've talked about, I think ad nauseum on your program, that <laughs> that that being such as angels, the sons of God, the other sons of God, our elder sons of God, that they are somehow inherently able to jump space or whatever. That just doesn't make any sense because yeah. we find them using technology and doing other things that uh, would gainsay that notion. So I think portals exist, but you know, it's just it's just rank speculation. There's nothing we know nothing about extra dimensions and portals. We know nothing except for that they're theoretically possible. Well, I mean, and I say that to to listeners listening to the show. If you haven't listened to some of our previous episodes, you probably need to go back. But Tim, I think you've helped us kind of create a framework here on the podcast. And when we're interviewing other people. You know, this is a journey podcast. It's always those moments where I want to like, ah, I wonder what Tim would think about that. And we've talked about that before. And sometimes listeners are on the on the journey with us from from episode one. And there's just these moments where you get a little bit of something different when you do an episodic podcast. And that was one. he talked. He told the story about Bigfoot climbing through. Someone told the story on the res of Bigfoot like climbing through this. It was on Skinwalker Ranch. It was, yeah, it was the Sherman. Yeah, that was, was Sherman's. Yeah, that comes from the book Hunt for the Hunt for the Skinwalker. And in that book, they're I think they're using night vision. They're sort of surveying the property. The scientists, this is a group of scientists from NIDS, uh, which was Bigelow's, Bigelow's yeah. organization. And they were, if I if if memory serves me, they were surveying the property at nighttime with night vision and perhaps infrared. And they saw what appeared to be like a portal, a tunnel open. And some kind of a creature, what they perceive to be some kind of a creature, crawl out of it and then disappear into the woods. But yeah, that 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 comes from the NIDS scientific research on Skinwalker Ranch. Nate, I, yeah. like the, I love that you brought up the you know, the Golden Age. I think because what, what Tim, I know you want to talk about today is isn't it really just like when we talk about apotheosis? Isn't it just the fostering the return of the Golden Age right at the end? Isn't isn't that a lot of what you kind of hypothesize is that there's the occult societies that have have since the Golden Age been trying to usher in its return? Uh, maybe I'm off on that, but I I believe that's part of what you know what we would see at the end with the idea of maybe Atlantis being reborn or yeah. This is one of those things that I that you mentioned in the beginning that I, we were talking about off camera that before the show that I thought when I was writing the book I thought that this idea that I developed in the book this term apotheotheism would get picked up and start to be used although it's a very complicated word it's a difficult word I invented it in the book for my for, for the purposes of explaining what was being formulated in terms of a new religion. So apotheotheism is the word that I coined to describe this new religion. And, and it synthesizes two different ideas that are surely coming together right now. And those two ideas are apotheosis, which is the deification and glorification of man, man becoming a god, essentially, and theism, which is an acknowledgement and a belief an affirmation that the gods exist. And apotheotheism stands in contrast to atheism. We're all familiar with atheism, and atheism means a denial of the gods, a disbelief that the gods, plural, exist. Not just Yahweh, not just the God of Israel, but the gods in a general sense, that gods exist at all. And atheism is, as I write in the book, is going extinct, or rather it's evolving. And it's evolving into apotheo 
theism. So when you take the idea of apotheosis, which is the deification of man, that man is going to be become like the gods. That's the traditional idea of apotheosis, is that man, a man, is being elevated to a god. And this, this was common with the Greek kings and with the Roman emperors who were mere men, but then through their lifetimes, either before they died or posthumously, were elevated to a divine status, such as uh, Augustus, Emperor Augustus, for example. After Augustus died, or perhaps even before he died, he was elevated to a god. And so this was a man who suddenly was numbered among the gods. That's apotheosis. He became like the gods. And then theism, a belief in the gods, generally speaking, when you marry those two things together, what you have is a situation in the future in which, generally speaking, the the populace of planet Earth is going to embrace the reality, not the religion, the reality that the gods, plural, exist, and that we, the human species, can become like them. And that is the religion of the future. And when I say that, that the gods exist, I'm not talking about Zeus I'm not talking about Poseidon. I'm not talking about, you know, the god, the ancient uh, gods of the Canaanites. I'm not talking about the gods of the Egyptians, Osiris and Horus and Isis and, and so forth. I'm talking about an extraterrestrial race of beings who are so advanced and who are so superior biologically, but also advanced technologically that for all intents and purposes, they are gods in comparison to us. And so when these beings come, when they make their appearance on the scene, mankind will regard these beings in the same way that the ancients regarded the gods that they venerated, but, but whom they could not interact with. That's the difference. See, the gods of the future are going to walk among us. So it's going to be a much more practical understanding they did in the in the golden age in the same way that they did in the golden age exactly that's exactly right so the watchers appeared on earth in the days of jared and walked among men and these watchers were no doubt you know seven feet tall somewhere around there six and a half to eight feet tall somewhere in that range i would guess and and they were and they were much fairer than mankind even though we're talking about the offspring of of adam who were very pure, genetically speaking. This is only six generations from Adam. And so, you know, mankind at that time was very regal, much more regal than we are today. But even, even though man was in a, in a regal state compared to us, the watchers would have been much more regal than they were. In other words, they would have been biologically superior. They would have looked exceedingly handsome. They would have been... Um, full of life and vitality. Perhaps their eyes were shining, not like, you know, flashlights, but shining in a way, glowing, that their skin was glowing, perhaps even like a translucent glow, something of this nature, that they looked godlike. And so these weren't idols, they weren't statues, as in the post-flood context when, when men would worship idols and, and, and have effigies of God. Rather, the gods were walking among men. And living with them, and as we all know, copulating with their women, with their daughters. Hmm. And that is very much the kind of situation that we can expect to unfold in the future. Except now we are going to have the technology. We have the tools 
now the, the the fundamentals of those tools which we've talked about in the past the rudiments of those tools to transform our own biology and to actually become like these beings who are going to appear and they in fact are going to help us in our apotheosis that's why the religion of the future is not a disbelief in god it is not atheism atheism is is going extinct on planet earth make no mistake about it there will there will not be any more atheists left on planet earth by the end of, at the end of the age uh, everybody will acknowledge affirm that the gods exist because they're going to be plain to see they're going to be walking among us and will most of mankind will aspire to become like them and again this is um, as we've talked about in the past this is a this is full circle back to the beginning back to the garden of eden yeah that's what i was going to say this is the same this is the tree of of the knowledge of good and evil it's you, you can be like god it's the same precisely promise right the, precisely the, the, it's the temptation of eve yeah to become like the gods and by the way it's not you shall be like god it's you shall be like the gods mm. In Genesis, you shall be like the gods. And who were the gods? Who were the gods to whom the, the serpent was referring? The gods were the Elohim, yeah. our elder siblings. The, those were the gods. And we were created to be a little lower than them. And so this temptation to Eve was very tangible. It wasn't some, some fanciful thing. You're going to be like Zeus or something like that. Of course, Adam and Eve had no concept of, of pagan gods or anything like that. All they knew were their elder siblings. And in fact, I argue that Eve was conversing, dialoguing with one of their elder siblings, namely the devil. The old, hmm. the serpent of old. Right, who we've, who we've talked about in the past, who the devil was, was, was from the elder race. For the people who are just joining us and kind of don't know, the, there's, you're outlining the difference between the demigods versus the gods, right? The demigods were the Poseidons, those guys, because they were kind of a half- no, those are the those were the gods. Well, well, a demigod, a demigod is a is Hercules. It's like the the offspring of a god and man. Yeah, or you know, uh, uh, that's a demigod. But that it's would be Hercules. Hercules, right? That would be Hercules. Yeah. yeah. So Poseidon would be in the from the in the in Greek cosmology. Poseidon was a bona fide god, and his offspring, who Atlas and the other twin sons of Poseidon, were the demigods. They were half man, half god. Uh, they were produced through the union of Poseidon sure. and a human woman. Those were the demigods of yore. They were Nephilim for all intents and purposes. So where do the gods go then? Where do the gods go between then and now? So the gods, in, in let's talk about a future context. So when I say that the gods are going to appear, in fact, the Bible uses the term gods like this as well. The term god, G-O-D, theos, is not a particular thing. It's a regal being who is elevated above mankind, so, uh, an, an entity that is greater than mankind in terms of its biology and intelligence and so forth. And so the entities that are going to show up on the earth, at least in accordance with, with my theory that I lay out in my book, Birthright, the entities that are going to show up are going to be first and foremost demigods. They're going to be the offspring of the dragon princes. And I don't know that we've even really talked about this much. This is one of those no. con controversial points that I thought people were going to be raising with me often. And in fact, it hasn't happened not one time. In all the interviews I've done, you know, dozens and dozens of interviews over the last couple of years, nobody has ever asked me about this. And that is, 
that I postulate in my book that there are seven dragon princes. There's, there's the chief among them, the dragon, who is, who is their head, but he has six subordinates and they are his chief angels. That's the way that the, the Bible would describe them, the devil and his angels, as it's, as it's described in the Greek. So there's not just one dragon, there are seven dragon princes and they are bound together in a confederacy. In a confederacy. And I derive this from several, from several different things, but primarily from the seven-headed dragon of Revelation, the red dragon of Revelation that have seven heads. And that dragon, it's a seven-headed dragon. It is a depiction of, it's a depiction of Leviathan, but it's, it's a seven-headed dragon and it bespeaks seven chief rebels who caused an insurrection in the cosmos of unimaginable destruction. And we've talked about this, the destruction mm-hmm. of what I believe uh, the planet of, of a planet that I believe that the Bible designates covertly as Rahab, that is now the asteroid belt between Mars and Jupiter. Interesting. And that destruction of that planet was the result of this uprising, this rebellion, maybe some kind of technology, maybe it was, maybe who knows what happened, but, but I, I believe that the Bible, that there's intimations of this in the Bible. People may think, why, why in the world would you think that? Well, read my book. And you'll see that there is a thread that you can follow. Now, whether I am interpreting this correctly or not is up for debate, but there is a thread that you can follow. And if you follow this thread through the narrative of scripture, you get this panorama of a time before Adam, a time before mankind in which our solar system was inhabited and and some immense cataclysm laid waste to every planet in our solar system and destroyed all life. And this is why you have in the Bible, you have uh, references to Rahab and the wrath of God and the mountains melting like wax before the Lord. And I believe that when the Bible talks about the mountains melting like wax, that it's referring to a time in which the mountains actually did melt like wax. That would be an event, a cataclysm, the likes of which we, again, we can't even imagine. Much, much more impactful than a than an asteroid striking the Earth. We're talking about a heat that literally would would just absolutely eviscerate, melt everything on Earth or vaporize everything on Earth and on these other planets. That's the kind of a, a cataclysmic destruction that I'm talking about, that I think happened in the distant past. And I think we've talked about that before. Yeah. Um, so going back to the dragon, this individual, he's so abominable, this individual. He's so accursed that he's never named. Mm. And people miss this. He's never named. There's a, there's a whole lot of monikers, appellations to refer to him, such as the devil, the dragon, the serpent, the Satan, but he's never actually given a name. No, Lucifer is not his name. That comes from the Latin Vulgate, uh, Jerome's translation of the scriptures, the Latin Vulgate, in which he takes the description of morning star and turns it into a name, Lucifer. So that comes from the Latin Vulgate. And, and I, don't have a, I don't really have a problem with people saying, naming Satan, this entity Lucifer, because we all understand what people mean when they say Lucifer. It's a little bit more of a, a more definitive 
term than the devil, the Satan, because that's the way it is in, in the Aramaic, the Greek, and the Hebrew is the Satan, the devil, the serpent. So, and there can be many Satans, and there are more than one dragon. There's, there's a confederation of seven. So this confederation of seven, there's six and six and one in the middle who's their chief, their head. And that individual is, as I always say, very much like Voldemort in Harry Potter. It's he, he who should not be named. So those sevens are all pure, technically speaking, gods. And then yes. their, their offspring would, have would been be the demigods. De- demigods. That's right. And so, but my my question though is like it, it seems though when we like on the show, these ancient demigod kingdoms they didn't really get along very well. Is that because there was too much human blood in the demigods and they just fought against each other? Well, first of all, we have to understand that that there, there's this notion. It's a prevailing notion that there are a whole bunch of different players here when we look at the biblical narrative. The Watchers are one kind of creature. Like a lot of people think the Watchers are reptilian type beings. And then you have the cherub, Cherubim who are another type of creature. And then you have the Seraphim and the, and the, other, and the other entities. You have the angels. And, the, and, and people like to categorize all these different creatures as different looking beings or different species, different kinds of entities. And I, I, I have a very different, different view. I see all of those things, all of those denominations are referencing the same race. And that race is known as the sons of God. And I go through this in the book as why I believe we're talking about the same race here. Different descriptions, different denominations of the same race. We talked about that. And then you would say the... The servants in the house are different creatures than the right, sons and of God. I think there's a myriad of different creatures sure. out there. Yeah, but I but the ones that we're interacting with in the biblical context, the gods, they are members of the elder race. Now within the elder race, there's a hierarchy, and so even though they might all be members of the elder race, and I'm talking about the devil and his angels, I'm talking about Michael and Gabriel and all these different angels, good and bad, dark and light that are, are that we encounter in the scriptures. They're all members of the same race, but they're they're not all equal in terms of their rank. Right. Like a kingdom. In, in terms of their position in 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 the cosmology of the kingdom. I believe that the term that the cherubim are the princes. They are the princes among the elder race. They are the most exalted members of that race. And that those princes are variously described as princes, as Elohim, as cherubim. I think all of this is describing the same individuals, the same group of individuals who are the most exalted members of the elder race. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of reasons why I say that. But one of the most practical reasons is let's look at the term watcher. And we'll tie this back into the gods in a minute. But... Let's look at the term watcher. When we think about a watcher, there's a whole lot of speculation out there. What is a watcher? What, what does a watcher do? But we know what a watcher does. We don't have to speculate about what a watcher does, and we don't even have to go to the extra biblical text of Enoch to find out. We can go to the book of Daniel. And in the book of Daniel, there's a fascinating scene that almost nobody references when they talk about the watchers, because the term watchers is a biblical term. It is not an extra biblical term. It is a 
biblical term from the book of Daniel. And in the book of Daniel, I don't, I don't have the reference right off the top of my head, but there's that, that scene, that episode in which King Nebuchadnezzar is being judged. And his judgment, and I'm sure we've discussed this, but, but by way of review, his judgment is madness. God is going to judge him for his wickedness, and he's going to be made to have the mind of a beast and to eat grass. And I said, God is going to judge him. That's not exactly accurate, see? Because the the accurate way to explain this is not that God is going to judge him, but rather the gods are going to judge him, i.e. the watchers. Is it Daniel 4.13? A holy angel or celestial being, it is the messenger of God, which came down from heaven to transmit Daniel a message, the watcher, or holy one, says Daniel, that Nebuchadnezzar will become mad. He will eat yes. grass and he will behave like an animal or a beast. And a council of watchers. It goes on to describe a council of watchers. So so there's a council of Elohim who are called watchers here. They're designated watchers here. This is the council of God. Now, people accuse me of saying that Jesus is just an angel because of this, but but they're missing what I'm saying completely. Jesus is the king of heaven. The son of God is clearly the king of heaven. It's his council. He's not a member of the council. It's literally his council. He is the king, just just like earthly kings had councils and to this day have councils. The king of heaven has a council. And it is the king and his council who preside over matters. It is the king and his council who we see in the opening scenes of Genesis who are deliberating over the creation of mankind. It is the sole prerogative of the king to create mankind. But it is nevertheless the king and his council who deliberate, make the decision to create mankind. And so we have this same council who are called watchers in the book of Daniel who are deliberating, who are sitting in judgment over Nebuchadnezzar and who have determined that his judgment is going to be that he is going to be stricken with madness. He's going to basically live like a, a cow for a period of time and eat grass. And, and, and when that period of time ends, of course, Nebuchadnezzar learns his lesson and extols the God of Israel. So right there, we have a scene in which watchers are defined. They're not like some reptilian different faction. No, they are the Elohim, the council of God. And again, I would say that the Elohim are the elder race, but they are the exalted members of the elder race because that same group of beings is referenced as princes in, I believe, even in the book of Daniel. So you have Elohim, princes, watchers. Those terms are synonymous. In other words, they're the same beings. So, Tim, Tim, so getting to the seven princes of the dragon, they are going to be synonymous to the to the watcher. Exactly. You you literally took the words out of my mouth. So when we talk okay. about yeah, the yeah. dragon, the mm-hmm. dragon princes, who are we talking about? We are talking about defected members of the Elohim. We are talking about defected princes. We are talking about defected, I would go so far as to say, defected cherubim. Why cherubim? Because the word watcher is also synonymous in both Aramaic and in English. The word watcher is synonymous with guardian 
And we, we do the same thing in English. We say that, you know, uh, we, we use the term watchman, right? So watchman, guardian, it's the same idea. So a watcher is not just a being who looks down at the earth and watches it. You know, that's what I used to think, actually, until it dawned on me. What is the job of a, the cherubim? They guard the throne of God. They're guardians. Well, Tim, now, Tim, I would say like in a, in, a, in a modern day context, too, you talk about like patrols and being on watch, right? You're, you're the, you're are the exactly. entity in, the, in, your, in your platoon tasked with the task to keep guard or keep watch you know uh, over the yeah over the kingdom over the over kingdom in that case yeah over the kingdom and by the way as we've talked about many times the kingdom is vast there's many realms and so the the watchers the highest ranking members in the kingdom of heaven who are sons of god and are the most exalted members of the elder race are the guardians of the kingdom. They watch over the kingdom. That's why the cherubim, the cherub in the Bible is not a creature. It's not a creature. And, and I, I say that with sympathy to those who are convinced that it is because I was one of those people. So I have sympathy for, I'm sympathetic to, to people having a hard time letting that go because Ever since I was a kid, my, I remember my dad would read the book of Daniel and, and when it would describe the watchers and, and, and he would have this fascination with the idea that there's these strange creatures up there at the throne of God, worshiping God, and, and that their purpose is to just extol God day and night. And then they have, you know, four faces and wings with eyes all over. And, and I was even taught uh, coming up through the, the charismatic church that that the purpose of, of the watcher is to fascinate our hearts or something like that, which, which is, of course, a very vacuous interpretation of the watcher, of a cherub, rather. But as I began to understand and learn and study, I realized that, the, that number one, every instance of a, a cherub is prophetic iconography. They're always, they always appear in a vision and the, and the visions of the prophets had one purpose, to communicate a message. Not The prophet was not supposed to see things that were literal. He was supposed to see things that were symbolic. And then that symbolic information was to be interpreted and understood to mean something practical, to mean something tangible, usually pertaining to events on earth and most specifically to Israel and its neighbors, right? Hmm. However, they also have implications that reach into the past. Prophecy isn't just about hmm. the future. It also reaches into the past because the nature of prophecy is, is esoteric. It's concealed. It is the glory of God to conceal a thing. And so, and I know this is getting a little bit off topic here, but just going yeah. with it. So, the, when we look at a cherub in the Bible, and I won't get into the and how we might break that down in terms of interpretation because it's very complicated, but a cherub in the Bible with the four heads, the four faces, the wings and the eyes and so forth is symbolic. It is an, it is iconography. Is that describing its job? It is this in part, it is describing its job and its attributes. But there's also astronomical uh, information that is encoded in the chair. But, but it is, yes, describing its attributes. So you have the, a guardian, and it has faces looking in 
all four cardinal directions and eyes all around. What does that communicate to us? It's watching. It means that these beings are watching. They're mm. guarding. They're vouchsafing the kingdom. Yeah. Right? Mm. That's part of the communication. They are guardians, watchers. But then there's also some amazing astronomical interpretations there as well that are mind-blowing, that, are that again, are encoded in, in the anatomy of, the, of these beings. So these are not literal beings. Mm. These, this is iconography. It is a message. And we know that this is the case because cherubim are not unique to the Hebrew cosmology. They are Mesopotamian iconography. And so it already had a meaning. The cherubim already had a meaning in the Mesopotamian world before Daniel saw them in heaven, which means that God was causing Daniel to see a symbol that he was familiar with, and Daniel was therefore to derive information from that symbol based on the symbol's practical use and understanding and interpretation in the world in which he lived, i.e., Mesopotamia, Babylon. So it's not that we have we need we don't need to be imposing an interpretation on on the cherubim. The interpretation already exists in the ancient world, and those beings were the guardians of the kingdom. That they guarded the throne, and by guarding the throne, they're guarding the kingdom. And so the so in my estimation, I could be wrong, and everyone's open to their own opinions on this, but. From, in my estimation, the watcher, the cherubim, the princes, the sons of God, the Elohim. Now, let's take the word sons of God and put that aside. The Elohim, all of those things are referencing the same guys. And it is from that group, that most exalted rank among the sons of God, that the devil and his angels defected. So it'd be like, okay, let's let's put this in like, you know, layman's terms. You take Tom Brady and Ron and Gronk. And you go. Oh, but better yet, if you in any of any of the golf stuff that's going on now, you take all these big golfers and you go start another golf. I don't know if you've seen any of that stuff with PGA and LIV. That's all another sports reference. But well, you t- you take like the yeah, like the they're trying to start a, a whole league, huh? A bunch of the ruling class, and you go start your own team. You're taking your ball and you want to start your own team, and you want to beat the team, you know, the home team, right? For and there's still you know, princes. And they're still exalted beings. Yeah, it's like it's yeah. I mean, well, I mean, we only know as Christians, we only know this story. We we don't think about this these two empires. You know, we sort of think that Satan is this rogue figure in the in the scripture, and he's just kind of tinkering and messing with people. But it it's you you're you're describing more of no. A, he has a kingdom. Now the Bible is yeah. very explicit about that. There is a kingdom of darkness, and I think an even better analogy would be although as i always say i hate making movie references but i always end up doing it well that's how we understand it's it's very much like jedi and sith you have these light workers and then these workers of darkness from the you got guys from the the light side of the force and then the dark side of the force they're all basically using the same technology it's the same kind of idea this faction the dragon and his angels the, the dragon and these were princes These were princes. And so I want you to think about this for a moment, because, by the way, Jesus is called the prince of princes and the king of kings. And and we've discussed this previously, that there's there's a multiplicity of realms, not just the earth. The earth is one realm. When you talk about a principality in the scriptures, a principality, as I've said a thousand times, is not an entity. It is a realm. 
A principality is a realm hmm. governed by a prince. And so if you have seven princes among the highest rank of the elder race, of the angelic race, who defect from the kingdom, they become rebels, they don't come alone. They're coming with right. their realms. Their armies. Yeah. These princes are defecting with their respective realms. And how do you how did you come to that determination that there were seven and they defected? It's a revelation. What are you getting that? Well, from? first of all, it was the, the the primary reason is because of the iconography of the of the Leviathan, the dragon with seven heads. And that each one of these heads had crowns. There was a crown on each head. So you have the 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 dragon of the red dragon of Revelation, seven heads, it's seven diadems. So a diadem is is indicative of a prince or king. It's indicative of a realm, right? If you're a prince or a king, that means you govern something. Right. You're a regent. Regents and vice regents, as you like to say, Tim. Right? And these guys aren't locked away. They're right. And the, these guys were regents of the highest order. They had realms. And I would imagine that they probably they drew their realms into a war, a civil war, a cosmic civil war. Now we've gotten way away from apotheotheism, but we can. Yeah, I wanted to get back to that because because here we are. So I mean, that, that's great foundation for what we're talking about in Revelation. We have this. We're looking to the future, right? And, and so that's what I wanted to say. So how, right now, when we talk about transhumanism, and we whole con you have a whole conference where you address transhumanism and and the ability in the same way. It's, it's the desire, and then utilization of technology in order to upgrade humanity, upgrade, and I use quotes for that, to a higher level, right? And so when you talk about a, a, apothotheism, as you say it, it's we're being conditioned, I would think, right now to get to the point where the gods walk among us like they did in the golden age. And you now you're saying there's these seven princes of the dragon, there's seven dragon princes. So what's the trajectory? What's going on right now that is trajecting us to that? And then I've got to, like, in your, this is all in your theory of this, but, like, if they're going to walk among us like they did in the days of Noah, and we know that the Bible's very clear that in the end days will be like the days of Noah, and we know in the golden age, that, like I just said, we laid this great foundation, the watchers physically were here, and you're a practical guy. Everything is practical in, in your when you theorize, right? So these seven princes show up. So I want to go from here today, what's happening now that's moving us or conditioning us to that point, and then they show up. How do they show up? Is this is this the a first contact thing where they where it's it's a quote alien you know arrival like in, I think Independence Day we talk about movies Independence Day or you know, the aliens show up. But the, yes, so in the Book of Revelation, the red dragon. And by the way, I associate this red dragon with Edom. That's a whole other rabbit trail that's in my book. Very important, Edom, the arch enemy of Israel. In Revelation thirteen, we have an episode, a scene in which. The red dragon, the seven-headed red dragon, is standing on the shore of the sea, presiding over the emergence of the beast. And the beast is nearly identical to the dragon. He mirrors the dragon, uh, except that he has seven heads, like the dragon, and he has ten horns, but he has ten diadems on his horns and blasphemous names on his heads, whereas the dragon has seven heads and seven diadems. And so I believe what, what's being depicted here is, is a transference of authority from the red dragon to the beast. In other words, the red dragon, the seven dragon princes have diadems on their heads. They, these are 
princes. They are transferring their authority to the beast, but we know that the beast is comprised of 10 kings. The beast has seven heads, but there are 10 kings, and those kings are represented in the horns, and the diadems, the crowns, are transferred to the horns. And there's a lot that can be said there, but the point that I want to make is that this transference of authority is delineated in Revelation, in which we are told that the dragon imbues the beast with his authority. So we see that there is a transference of authority from the dragon to the beast. And the beast, in turn, causes mankind to extol, to worship the dragon. And furthermore, I believe that the the, the reason why the beast mirrors the dragon with seven heads and so forth, although the beast has different features than the dragon, it, it is is basically an approximate mirror of the dragon and its primary features, is that the, the beast represents these earthly kings who are going to rise at the end of the age. And much like the offspring of Poseidon and his human wife, these kings are going to be hybrid kings. They're going to be the offspring of the dragon princes who will copulate with human women at the end of the age and give birth to these hybrid kings. And we could get into the book of Daniel where it talks about where Daniel interprets Nebuchadnezzar's uh, dream about the statue that has that's that's composed of the different metals. And then, of course, the feet are iron mixed with clay. And, and I believe that that ties directly into this that there's 10 toes on those feet and they're iron mixed with clay. And that is a representation of a hybrid empire uh, that is coming at the end of the age and hybrid in the genetic sense. I mean, there's also political hybridization here and there's also an interpretation of that statue that relates to the Holy Roman empire, but that's uh, for a different conversation. So the clay, point of- clay would be human. Iron would be angelic. Yes. And so, And so the end of the age, to sort of wrap all this up, it's very complex. At the end of the age, I believe that the dragon princes, so the devil and his angels, those seven primary rebels are going to copulate with human women. They're going to take human wives, just like the Watchers did. They're going to copulate with and inseminate their wives who are going to conceive and give birth to hybrids. And those hybrids are going to become the kings at the end of the age who are subordinate to this primary king, who we call the Antichrist. We're looking at a Genesis 6 type scenario happening again at the end of the age, but this time, rather than it being just the watchers, we now have the who was at one time the most exalted among them, as the uh, book of Ezekiel calls him, the exalted cherub, who was probably the highest ranking prince in the kingdom of heaven, who has since rebelled, who has since defected, and is now leading an insurrection against the kingdom of heaven. He is going to inseminate a woman at the end of the age, and, and, and his hybrid son will be the Antichrist, and I believe that his name will be Apollo, and that it is those demigods who are going to show up, Apollo and his consorts, who are his consorts? His consorts are his siblings, 
who are the hybrid sons of the other dragon princes. It is those demigods who are going to show up. So this, so the iconography is describing sort of like the ki- the kingdom of darkness on Earth, the men, and then the kingdom off Earth. So you have these two metaphors, and that's why it's so confusing to read it in Revelation. Yes, you have you have the dragon and his princes who have their kingdom, and you have the beast and his kings who are have their earthly governance. Yeah, that's what I was trying to say. <laughs> and at the end of the age, the dragon and his princes and his hybrid. They're a hybrid offspring and the post-human legions on Earth operating advanced technology are going to war with the armies of heaven. That's what I was going to ask. It is it is freaking Lord of the Rings yeah. <laughs> at the end of yeah. the age. So when This can't be something that just covertly happens in the shadows, right? Because if we're to stamp out atheism, as you would say, and, it, and everything translates into this apothotheism where people no longer don't believe in anything in, in there's nothing they believe in these gods you know the the sons of god these elohim then there has to be some sort of event right like this point of maybe an event horizon point of no return right where and, and how do you hypothesize that happens is this like i had asked before is this going to be a like a first contact thing where the they show up in ships much like you hypothesize at mount Hermon, except it's very public and we have yes. this okay yes it's going to be something like that in my estimation there's going to come a point in time in which the human race is facing an enemy, the likes of which it has never faced before. And we are not going to have the tools to overcome this enemy. We will not be able to defeat this foe. And I believe that this enemy is the gray aliens. Mm. And I believe that the reason why we will not be able to defeat them is number one, they're operating more advanced technology than we are. And number two, they're integrating into our populace through their own hybrid program. Mm. So we're, we're going to be so far along down the road when this conflict erupts between the, popu- the human population of planet Earth and the gray aliens, we're going to be outmatched, we're going to be outgunned, and we are going to be in severe need of a savior to deliver us from this implacable foe. And that savior is going to be Apollo and his consort who are going to show up in advanced aerospace vehicles with even greater technology than the Greys, able to identify their hybrids and able to defeat them on every level and deliver mankind from basically annihilation at the hands of the Greys because the Greys are integrating into the human species and they're I believe that their ultimate goal is planetary acquisition, as Dr. David Jacobs calls it. In other words, they want to take over the Earth. And who knows what that looks like in terms of of the human populace. We probably will just be like, you know, farm animals for them from which they harvest their genetic materials, can continue to hybridize their offspring, their 
mm. uh, create their advanced hybrids. Now, we're talking so, about two different groups here, and I want this to be very clear for people. I know we're getting very, very, very confused, confusing here with all <laughs> mm. of these different components, and that's why it took me a couple of years to write this book, by the way. But, but I want people to separate these two factions, move them on opposite sides of the table in your mind. Gray aliens to the left and hybrid sons of the dragon to your right and also the hybrid advanced hybrids that the grays are creating also over there to the left with the grays these are different factions the grays are not fallen angels the grays are not demons what are they they're the grays i don't know they're the grays they're just a different biological creature that's in the mix do a lot more people in this space agree with you on that idea now than before? Yes. Oh, yes. Yes. I've had many a conversation with, with my colleagues. And when the facts are reviewed and we, we discuss these things from a logical point of view, it becomes clear to, to everyone that the, that the greys are not demons and are not fallen angels. Although it's very difficult, a lot of these people have written books and, and, and have already basically spent years and years uh, arguing the contrary to that, that it's very difficult for people to publicly then go in and try and reverse course. So I think I think a lot of people out there probably realize that the greys are not demons, number one, and number two, they're most likely not fallen angels. I'm, I'm 100% these are not of the angelic faction. And so it's, you know, at this point, it's it's very difficult for 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 people to, to go and undo years and years of of professing the exact opposite. We had a wild conversation the other night, Tim. I don't know how much, like, I don't know when these episodes are going to come out. And he was talking about what an avatar is. And that just kind of blew my mind into like a whole nother category. But lately on the show, Tim, we've been talking about the different categories. And so I like you separating them left to right because it does get more complex. It does get strange. And when you were talking about all this and I was thinking about the governance and just the hierarchy and the structure and the prince of princesses, I always thought in my mind, what does it mean to be an only begotten son of God, that Christ was singled out as the only begotten. Well, the Bible says, John says that he was in the bosom of the Father. John and Paul affirmed that all things were created through him and by him and for him. He is the singularity. He is the source of all creation. There is no other being within creation that can claim to be the source of creation. Only the Son of God is the source of creation. He was with the Father before creation. And so he is not a part of created order. He is the source of created order, and that distinguishes mm. him far above all other creatures, all other creatures, the Elohim, every heavenly being, the Son of God is supreme. And that's why he's the King of heaven. Tim, you know, Christ offers us eternal life. And when we talk about Apollo and his cohorts showing up and offering salvation to, to mankind, from this onslaught of from the grays adversary is that the point where they offer us eternal life in the sense of well <laughs> because the revelation says people beg for death and it won't come to them right so there's See, there's a, there's a confluence of themes happening at the end of the age and this is the primary reason i wrote my book was to be able to identify each one of these themes to the best of my ability and be able to delineate how these things are coming together, what they, what they are exactly, what these different themes comprise and how they are coming together and what, and the con and what the confluence of these themes 
is leading to. And as, and as I say, probably every single time that I talk to you guys, and most of the time when I talk to other people about the content of my book, I always like to show this diagram that's in my book. Can you see that? Yeah. Mm -hmm. it's, a, it's three concentric circles that are converging. And those are the three primary themes that I believe are going to be the most dynamic elements of the unfolding of the end times. Uh, and those three dynamics can be described as the new religion, which we're talking about today, apotheotheism, which I call apotheotheism, the alien threat and the golden race, the company, the, the Apollo and his consort, and, and, the, and the threat of the greys. That's, that, that's, that's what that comprises. And then the post-human paradigm, which is the, the, the whole topic of transhumanism. So if you think of those three things as separate spheres that are developing on their own, but are also slowly converging. The new religion, the alien threat, which is the greys, and the post-human paradigm, which is the, the transhumanism and those technologies. All three of those things are converging together. And when they come together, the result is going to be a new golden age in which the gods walk among men and lead mankind into open kinetic war with the king and his armies, the king of heaven. See, that's the end game. That's where all of this is going. And so that's why I was making a point, even though it was very confusing, to, to demonstrate that that seven-headed dragon, the dragon and his princes, are going to preside over the rise of the beast who I believe are their offspring, their human hybrid offspring, Not, nothing to do with the grace, okay? Separate that. That's on a different side of the table. These are the offspring of the dragon princes. They are going to take dominion of the earth, and they are going to consolidate power on the earth, and there is going to be a union, an unholy union, between the kings of the earth mm. and the princes, now, if we back up and we and we to address your question, Luke, which is a very important question, how do we get to that point from where we are now? How do we get to there? The answer is that we are going from denial to defiance. Denial is the is the prelude of defiance. It's the precursor of defiance. What do I mean by that? When I say defiance, I'm referencing open war with God. So. That means that you acknowledge that God, that Yahweh exists, that the Son of God, the King of Heaven exists, and His armies exist, and His kingdom exists, but you... Like the Tower of Babel, right? Exactly, but you have chosen to defy Him and to rise up against Him. It's Psalm 2, which we'll get to in a minute. And then on the other side of that coin, you have denial, which is atheism. Denial is secular humanism. That's where we are now. But we're, even now we're beginning, if you can imagine as a gauge, your fuel tank gauge in your car, we're moving from full to empty, full being denial, empty being defiance. And we're somewhere maybe, you know, three quarters of a tank at this point. We're still on the denial side of things because we're still in an atheistic, humanistic worldview most of the earth, right? Because atheism is growing and, and people are abandoning their faith, all faith. And this agnosticism and atheism is becoming the primary belief system of most people, certainly in the West. But denial 
is going to transform into defiance. And we're beginning to slowly see that happen. Think about this abortion stuff that's happening, how people are now celebrating the fact that they killed their babies and they're not even hiding it anymore. They love killing babies. Mm -hmm. And think about the open uh, transgender agenda and transhumanism. And all of this is pushing the gauge from denial to open defiance. So it's going from, we don't believe God exists to, we know God exists and we hate him. And furthermore, we are going to make war with him. And how do we get from denial to defiance? The answer is this. How do we get there? First, we have a threat. We have the grays. And then we have deliverance from that threat by Apollo and his consort who arrive to deliver mankind in the hour of need. And they will be, so imagine we, we have these, because remember, as we talked about in the past, the grays with the bulbous heads, the little guys are the worker bees, the real, and I believe the genuine biological species that are controlling the grays are the insectolins. The insectolins are these extremely exotic, alien looking creatures that are grotesque and terrifying. And those are the creatures that are perpetrating the abduction program and that most they're, they're responsible for most of the UFO sightings around the world. When this threat becomes known and it is slowly moving in that direction, as I've always said, the UFO phenomenon is now being framed in a, as a national security threat. And pretty soon it's going to be as a global threat, a threat to humanity. The grays are real. This is down the road. I don't know how far down the road, but it's way down the road. The grays are real. They're abducting people. They're integrating into human society. We can't stop them. Their technology is far superior to ours. Uh, we're going to try, but we're going to fail. You have, this, you have this menacing, grotesque, alien threat. And suddenly, these other extraterrestrial beings show up to deliver us. And these beings are golden blonde hair, blue eyes, fair skin. They pretty much look like us, but much fairer, much more regal than we are. They have better technology and they deliver us from this, the gray menace. And mankind extols them. And in the midst of all this, by the way, we're already progressing along the path of post-humanism, transhumanism, and everything that that entails, which is a different conversation. We're already on that path as all of this is unfolding. And so that's when the dial changes. That's when, the, that's when we go from denial to defiance, because at that point, mankind will openly acknowledge that the gods exist, that these are in fact the gods of old. But these gods, Apollo, these demigods, Apollo and his consort, remember what they do. The dragon gives them authority. And what do they do? They cause mankind to worship the dragon. Mm. So they cause mankind, they lead mankind into the height of idolatry to worship the dragon, to acknowledge the dragon princes, that they are the supreme sentient beings in the universe, basically. Remember that uh, Jupiter was an aspect of Satan. Jupiter was the supreme deity of the Romans. He was, uh, he was, he's an aspect of Zeus. He's, he's the Roman Zeus uh, to the Greeks. And what, what was, who was Jupiter? And what did the name Jupiter imply? He was the king of all gods. That's who Jupiter was. That was Jupiter's defining characteristic. He was Optimus Maximus. Mm. Optimus 
Maximus, the greatest of all gods. And that is who the dragon will present himself as. The beast will cause us, cause mankind to extol his father, the dragon, in the same way that Jesus, the son of God, caused mankind to extol his father. Hmm. The dragon, the beast will the Antichrist will cause mankind to extol his father, who is, in fact, the devil. But again, the devil isn't going to show up with horns and a pitchfork. He's going to look even more regal than his hybrid son. Mm-hmm. And so when the dragon shows up, when the hybrid uh, offspring of the dragon, Apollo and his consort show up, and then they reveal to mankind that their fathers are these dragon princes, and then they say that their fathers are the greatest of all the gods, well, that then is going to imply that there are other gods out there who are lesser gods and who are, in fact, the enemy of mankind. And guess who those gods are? It's Adonai. It's Yahweh and his consort, the Elohim. And they are the enemies of mankind. Well, this should start sounding very familiar to everyone because this is called Luciferianism. Hmm. Luciferianism is an, is the inversion of the gospel of Christ. It's, in, it's the inversion of the biblical narrative. Luciferian espouses that Yahweh is a tyrant and that Yahweh had enslaved mankind. It wasn't a Garden of Eden. It was a terrible dystopian situation in which mm. Yahweh was, was enslaving mankind and, and withholding from him the secret knowledge, the knowledge of the gods. And the dragon, the serpent, was the savior of mankind, was the benefactor of mankind, who, like Prometheus, stole the fire of the gods and and gave it to mankind and revealed the secret knowledge of the gods to mankind. So Mm. Luciferianism is the inverse of the biblical narrative. Mm. Yahweh is the tyrant. Yahweh and the Elohim of heaven are the tyrants. And Mm. the dragon princes are the bringers of light. They are those who love mankind, who deliver mankind from their enemies, and who bequeath him with knowledge, with secret knowledge and technology. And furthermore, remember the serpent's promise uh, to Eve. They are going to make mankind like them, more specifically like their offspring, Mm -hmm. like Apollo and his consort. And Apollo and his consort represent the the prototype of what mankind can become. And so that's where the mark of the beast comes in, in my estimation. That's where the mark of the beast comes in. We will literally receive the genetic markers of Apollo to become like him using our technology. There has to be human agency involved in this. None of this is forced. We're using our own technology that we willfully develop. We've already, we're already willing to become the overman. We're already willing to become, you know, it's, I'm referencing Nietzsche's will to power. All of this is very, very complex, I'm sure, but it's in my book, If You're Lost. We are on this path of mm-hmm. conscious evolution. We are moving in this direction through our own agency before Apollo shows up. He's just going to give us the last piece of the puzzle, which I believe are mm. his genetic markers. And that is the mark of the beast, literally the genetic markers of the beast. And all of this is culminating in Armageddon. So that's why I say apotheotheism is a religion of the future. The gods exist and we will become like them. That's the religion of the future. Because we speak in memes on our show, it's literally the moment the two Spider-Mans are pointing at each other. You know, you know what I'm talking about? No, we're the, we're Jesus. No, we're, 
you know, and it's just the war and it's going to be hard for human beings to figure out, you know, which is the good, which is the good guy, which is the bad That's guy. Right. Exactly right. And, and here's a question for you then, Tim, are we, I grew up singing that song. I'm in the Lord's army. Yes, sir. I'm in the Lord's army. Yes, sir. Remember that when you were a kid? Yeah. I may never walk in the infantry. Are we, were human beings created for this kinetic war? Well, well, I, we're going to be sort of bystanders at, at when this thing goes down. You don't think we're like going to take on? We were created ultimately to take out the the dragon. There's not going. There's going to be a remnant of human beings left at the end of the age. That's it. Well, what what about in the afterlife? What about in the yeah after that? Certainly. Know? Yeah. But before we before coach. we move on from yeah. this, let me let me let me put a capstone on this because I, I've sowed a lot of confusion, I'm sure. But li- listen, I'm going to read this part and we'll wrap up this apotheosis explanation here just so we can put a bow on this thing because i know there's a lot of confusing uh, terms and and very uh complicated uh, themes that we've been kicking around but in my book i have a i have a little chart here that delineates apotheotheism atheism and apotheotheism and i'm going to read this paragraph just to sort of cement this idea in people's minds just cement what i mean by apotheotheism Atheism, the disbelief in God, is soon to evolve into apotheotheism, the belief that man can become a god himself. Rather than doubt the existence of Yahweh, apotheotheists demote him to a petty tyrant, an imposter who has many equals in the universe and whose attributes are attainable by means of technology. Whereas atheism is an expression of denial, apotheotheism is a posture of defiance. Atheism is derived from the doctrine of Darwin, who concludes that man is the product of evolution and has no purpose. Apotheotheism is derived from the doctrine of Nietzsche, who contends that overman is the purpose of evolution. The atheist argues that the gods do not exist. The apotheotheist acknowledges that the gods do exist and intends to become like them. The atheist declares that man created Yahweh. The apotheotheist is determined to depose him. That is, that is the difference of denial and defiance. Atheism versus apotheotheism. We are moving into a posture of defiance just like it was in the world before the flood of Noah. When every thought was wicked, when mankind was openly defying the ordinances of heaven and following after the watchers and their hybrid offspring in defiance of him. That is precisely where we are headed, except this time it's not the lesser watchers who are going to perpetrate this hybridization on earth in terms of their own sons the giant, who were the giants. This time it is the, the most exalted the most powerful among them, Satan himself, who is going to inseminate a human woman with his own seed and give, who, mm. will, who will then uh, give birth to his hybrid son, the Antichrist, Apollo. And he will have a consort who will be also hybrid offspring, uh, the hybrid offspring of the other dragon princes. That is the way that I view the end of the age. We're going into a kinetic war. We're not talking about some, 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 some supernatural war, like, like some invisible war. We are literally talking about armaments, technology, 
We're talking about advanced aerospace vehicles engaging in the sky. We're talking about explosions, kinetic war with God. And the reason why Apollo leads the inhabitants, the post-human inhabitants at this point, into open war, the reason why they take this posture of defiance is because they know something. See, remember, the dragon knows when he is kicked out of heaven that he has a short time. And by the way, I believe when the dragon is kicked out of heaven, it literally means that he's kicked out of outer space, basically, and confined to the earth. He's defeated, thrown to the earth, and now he's rallying, rallying what remains of his armies and of the armies of the beast because they know that somebody is coming. And that somebody is the son of God with the mm. armies of heaven in train. And I don't think that those armies of heaven are riding on horses. Guys, horses don't fly. They don't fly. Not yet. The armies of heaven are coming with technological armaments. Don't unicorns do, though. That's different. <laughs> so <Come> so <laughs> th this is where things are headed. I mean, we're talking about an epic battle. Of the wouldn't, wouldn't every Christian from, from the dawn of time be with them? No, I, I, I believe at this point we're talking about because the resurrection hasn't happened yet. See, the resurrection is what rectifies the human condition. We can't even be sons of God without the resurrection. We're sons of God being sons of the resurrection, according to Christ. Therefore, the resurrection has to happen before we are numbered among the, the saints in heaven, being the other sons of God who are coming. These other sons of God are coming to fight against the dragon princes, look, I think first the conflict happens in the, and I know people have a real hard time with this. So sometimes I hesitate to say it, but I shouldn't, I should just say it. The <laughs> conflict is going to happen somewhere else in the cosmos first, and then it's coming to the earth. And when it comes to the earth, it's the, the culmination of story arc of the son of God, the son of man, who's mm -hmm. coming back to take authority of the earth, to take dominion of the earth from the hybrid offspring of the dragon princes and to vanquish them once and for all. And th them, not, not necessarily the dragon yet, but they're the beast and his kings. And that is, to me, again, when I think about the end times, I don't think about a geopolitical situation in which Russia and Israel, no, no, no. We're far beyond that already. We're far beyond that because the end times must incorporate the things that are already developing, namely the alien threat, the post-human paradigm, and the new religion. Yeah. Those things must factor in. If those things do not factor in into your end times paradigm, then you're missing information. At the end of the age, there will hardly be a human being left on the planet. Yes, there will be human beings, some, a remnant, there's always a remnant, but the majority of the planet will be allied with the beast and will be in a post-human condition. In other words, they will no longer be human. And to, I think it was you, Luke, who's, or I don't remember if it was you, Luke or Nathan, who referenced that they will not be able to die yeah, because yeah, they, have, yeah. they have so modified themselves. They have, take, they have utilized technology, all the implements that we're developing now, the genetic technology, the uh, nanotechnology, uh, all of these, the cybernetic technology and incorporating the, the, the genetic markers of the beast. These are going to be superhumans, literally the overmen that Nietzsche talks about, 
or the godmen, the homo deus, Yuval Noah Harari talks about, are going to be allied with the beast against Yahweh and the Elohim and their armies. Tim, I think what's impressed upon me throughout this is that is, is always, and we say this a lot, Nate, like with Solomon, is there's nothing new under the earth, right? Like in the original golden age, you have the Enuma Elish and this Mesopotamian idea that the serpent is the creator God. And, and mm-hmm. the darkness takes and tries to in, invert and counterfeit that with what Yahweh and God has done. And at the end, you see it again, which is, I mean, it's, it's nothing's new. You have these, these, then we, if you hypothesize as Tim does that, you know, and we know in, in revelation, regardless of how you think it actually plays out that you have this antichrist, right? You have this figure who claims to come and save mankind, right? And it's, it's, it's always a bad, bad counterfeit, whether it be, the ancient Mesopotamian, the serpent creator God, or the dragon coming as the savior for mankind. It's like these mm. dudes can't create any of their own stuff. All they do is try to cheaply imitate and counterfeit that which the king of kings and lord of lords and prince of princes you know, has, has spoken and breathed into existence, which I, which I think there's the, the, the hope that you can, in all of this mass chaos and end of, of humanity, as, as we know, end of the of the earth as we know it is a reminder that like God still sits on the throne and the best that the bad guys can do is a very cheap imitation. It's that cheap Rolex you buy on the corner in, in, in New York. That's not really a Rolex. It breaks by the time you get home, right? You do it in high school. Maybe I did that in high school, but that's, that's an amazing point, Luke. I never thought about that. I always thought growing up in the church, you always thought that they knew that they weren't actually serving a, a God. They knew that Yahweh was supreme. But it sounds as though they don't. They actually think the dragon is supreme over Yahweh. They think that, you know, the gods of these other nations, they're serving them and they think that he's the supreme being. There's no question about it. That I always thought that they knew that they, he that their gods weren't the supreme being. Remember what Satan desired. And of course, when we say Satan, we're using a very abstract moniker for him. This, this he who shall not be named... This individual, the, the the chief of the dragon princes, right. re- remember what the he accuser. wanted. He wanted yeah. to be worshipped like God. Mm-hmm. Now, there's only one person who is worshipped right. like God, and that is yeah. the Son of God, the Lamb of God, who is extolled in the book of Revelations at the end of Revelation. Worthy is the Lamb, and worshipped and venerated with the Father. So the Father and his Son. So to be worshipped like God, not instead of God, mind you. He wanted to be worshipped like God. In other words, he wanted to be worshipped like the King of Heaven, like the Son of God. And that's what he wants. And by the way, there's another there's another curveball in here and probably should maybe cap this for the next conversation, but there is a, a hidden, uh, an obscure motive hmm. in the background here for the dragon and his princes and all of their legions. And that is, they may in fact be dying. Do we kind of touch on this and, and access the and, tree of and, life? And it, are they slowly dying? That's right. They, they need to get back yeah. in. They need to get back into the tree of life. And, and they're subject to entropy. Now, this is, of course, this is one of those controversial things that I talk about. And I, and I don't know that it is, in fact, the case. It's just speculation on my part that that could be in play as well. 
And there could be some kind of a vampiric dynamic going on with the sons of God, the fallen sons of God, and that they are living in some kind of a, again, I have to reference Harry Potter because those of you who've seen the, the Sorcerer's Stone will remember that Voldemort, had, had, the only way he could stay alive was to drink the blood of unicorns. And he mm-hmm. basically had to feed on other forms of life to stay alive. And Well, we hear stories of people doing that, well, you know, like some of the elites around the world, yeah. the George Soros's of the world are doing that. That's right. So that would certainly provide another impetus for the hordes of darkness to want to break into paradise and have access to that, that life-giving stimulus, whatever it is. And I don't think it's an apple. Whatever it is, the gift of God is eternal life, okay? The gift of God. Only God mm. is mm. intrinsically immortal, as we've talked about in the past. All other creatures, in my opinion, I believe according to Paul as well, are mm. extrinsically immortal. In other words, we were not created as immortal beings. Immortality is the gift of God. And so... That's a whole nother uh, rabbit trail, which I think we've already discussed in the past. Kind of my like overarching thought, if I think about this in a whole narrative, something that you've, after all these episodes with you, Tim, is that the way that God operates, it's not this flashy, it, it feels like in the, in the Lord of the Rings, Mordor was this, this war of industry right? It's mechanical. It feels metallic. It feels, and yet God on the other side, it's like Jesus is born in this manger. I see what you're saying. Yeah. You know, it's, it's very simple. Humble. Yeah. Humble. There is. And I think that's, that's a part of approaching God, becoming like a child, understanding that like you can't manufacture yourself into a God to get to God. The meek will inherit the earth. Yes. And that doesn't mean the weak. Yes. The meek will inherit the earth. Yes. And, uh, and it's, I mean, it's, don't you think that's because because God is 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 fully satiated by Himself? I mean, maybe that's the the key, right? Is it God plus nothing? Whereas every other created being needs inherently knows it needs the King of Kings. And maybe maybe that's the humbleness there is that, that God didn't need to come and be flashy. He doesn't need. He desires our worship and our love, but doesn't need it. And yet. Every created being, you would assume, needs the king of kings. Needs, well, he's the needs, source of life that, and joy that, and happiness yes. and goodness. Mm-hmm. Even the unrighteous yes. feel the goodness of God. Even as the Bible says, the sun shines on the righteous and the unrighteous. The rain falls on the righteous and the unrighteous. Both the righteous and the unrighteous enjoy beautiful scenery in the mountains and the ocean and, and mm. enjoy good food and enjoy rest, and enjoy all the good things that God has given mankind because those things belong to him. Yeah. He is good. He is holy. And everyone else benefits from his light and his love, whether you're evil or whether you're good, whether you've aligned yourself with the kingdom of heaven or made yourself an enemy of the kingdom of heaven, you still enjoy the goodness and the bounty of God until you don't. And, and that is the terrifying thing, is that when those things are taken from you and you receive the full measure of judgment that you rightly deserve, mm. that all of us rightly deserve, but for Christ, for those of us who believe in Christ, who took the penalty of our sin upon himself, but for those who have rejected Christ, they will receive the full measure, the full weight of their mm. sin. They will mm. receive punishment and judgment, and all of those good things will be taken away from them. They enjoy them now because because God is good and just. But after, when they are judged, when the day of judgment comes, they will no longer 
be able to enjoy the goodness and the mercy of God. Wow. And, wow. and that is the, that is the, the that is why God is is both great and terrifying. The judgment of God is is just, but is also terrifying. And if you are in a position as the as the enemies of God, the inhuman enemies of God, who are without salvation, you have no path of reconciliation. In other words, mm. Christ did not die for you if you are an angelic rebel against the kingdom of heaven. Christ did not die for you. There is no path of reconciliation, no path of friendship with God. That door is closed. You are an eternal enemy of God. If that is you, and it's not us, because there is a way of reconciliation for the human race, for the offspring of Adam, but if that is you, if you're an angelic rebel, you only have one alternative, one course of action. What is it? War. You yeah, have to yeah. force your way in and dethrone the king. Because if you don't, you know what's coming for you. You don't have an option. You don't there really is no option. option in the kingdom of darkness. It's Man. victory or eternal judgment. It's one or the other. So there's plenty of motivation. For the kingdom of darkness to make open war with God. And let's, you know, if we're going to, you know, put a final cap on this conversation, then we should do it. The, the culmination of all of this is Psalm 2. And Psalm 2 is directly referencing, in my opinion, it's referencing, referencing the end of the age and, and this kinetic war with God at Armageddon. Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? That's how it begins. What, what is this vain thing that the people are plotting? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together. Notice that. The kings of the earth is one group and the rulers is another. And they're yeah. taking counsel together. Who is that? That's the beast and his kings and that's the dragon princes. And, and their counselors, their angels are taking counsel together. And they're taking counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, his king, the son of God, saying, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. In other words, they're saying, we will not have this man rule over us. And that's going to be the attitude at the end of the age. We are not going to allow the son of God, Jesus of Nazareth, to return to the earth and rule over us. This is the, mm. this is the posture mm. of, of Psalm 2. And this is God's response. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. And I should have said that part of that posture of this of, of these people at the end of the ages, rather than have Christ rule over them, they, they're going to enthrone the Antichrist, Apollo. This is the one we want to rule over us. Satan is greater than Yahweh. That's going to be the posture at the end of the age. And this is the reply of God. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. And then it goes on to say, I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, you are my son, referencing Jesus, referencing the son of God. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. That's the birthright of Adam. 
You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. And that is in reference to the kingdom of the beast, to the governance of the beast, because that's what happens when Jesus is breaking the seals at the end of the age. It is inflicting judgment on the empire of the beast. Wow. And then it says, now, therefore, be wise, O kings, be instructed, you, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all those who put their trust in him. Psalm 2 is referencing the end of the age, Armageddon, kinetic war with God, and fear not because the Son of God will inevitably triumph. I love it I love because, it. I mean, let's assume David is writing this, right? And I keep thinking in my mind, I have this visual and kind of go back to what I was saying before, is that here you have these empires of Goliath and his brothers and little David, little scrawny David rolls out with a stone, a simple stone and takes him down, right? And this this idea that they were building these these, the golden age, they were building these empires of advanced technology and these pyramids that were probably these powerful generators that were putting energy all over the, these cities. And they had these, just these megalithic advanced tech societies. And then Christ comes born in a manger. That's right. Put your hope in this baby, in this stable. It's this huge New York City, and then it's just this barn on the side of the road in the middle of nowhere. You think you're going to take over the world with this empire, and I'm bringing the Son of God in a manger. It's hubris. It's hubris versus humility. Yeah. It's the ultimate depiction of the the nature and character of Christ and of God versus the nature and character of the dragon and his Mm. empire of darkness. And that is, again, what is developing, it's what's culminating right now, is yeah. this final epic showdown between the dragon and his princes and the son of God, the king of heaven, and his armies. So you can really look at it like the dragon and his princes versus the king of heaven and the Elohim. And they're both bringing their armies to the table. And it's not just heavenly armies, it's earthly armies, it's the beast marshalling his forces on earth, his post-human forces on earth, and the human beings that are left presumably are going to be, most of them presumably are going to be believers in Christ, Christians, who are going to observe this most epic of all battles unfold. It's not a spiritual battle. It is a kinetic battle. It is a physical battle. Yeah. I I just love verse four in there, which says, he who sits in heaven shall laugh. I think of, when we talk about movies, I think about Gladiator, one of my favorite movies, right? And and this talks about how they're conspiring. The kings of earth and the rulers conspire together and, and God sits on his throne and laughs. I think about that line in Gladiator where he says, the time for honoring yourself will soon come to an end. And he's talking to the emperor at that point. And this is mm. Maximus Aurelius in this, in this narrative. But I, I think about that in the sense of like, God laughs and says, 
now here's what happens. And I just think there's like, that's who we serve is that these people who have, who have honored themselves and glorified themselves and take in, and at this time point in time, taken this place for themselves in open war with God, as you would say to him mm. in defiance of God, God says he laughs and I have set my son. And, and, and this is just like, I mean, this is really pulling threads of birthright, right? You have this Jesus who is fully God, fully man. Mm. who can open the seals, who is the son of Adam, who can claim ownership and regency of earth, then comes and does it and vanquishes for the last time this rebellion. And it's like, and there's a, tell me so there's a better story than that. There isn't. He has all authority in heaven as the son of God and all authority, all authority on earth as the son of man, the son of Adam. Which is why I asked my question though, like what, what do humans have to play in all that? What was our destiny in this, this grander story? Well, it's not our story. It's, it's his story. We are ancillary characters in his story. And and what role do we have to play in this? And his story involves the redemption of the sons and daughters of Adam. We are the recipients of his heroic narrative. We are the beneficiaries of his heroic narrative. I want to point something out here. In, in Psalm 2, and I made a point to, to highlight this, it says, the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together. And I said that that's two separate groups, the kings of the earth, the beast and his kings and the rulers being some other group who presumably has their, their base of operations somewhere other than the earth. There's a verse in Isaiah 24 that reads the following. On that day, the Lord will punish the host of heaven in heaven, and the kings of the earth on earth will be gathered mm. together as prisoners in a pit. They will be shut up in a prison, and after many days, they will be punished. Mm. So there's, there's clearly two separate factions here that are conspiring together, and the way that I envision it as they know Christ is coming. They know that the Son of God, the armies of heaven are coming. They know that. And I believe yeah. that the dragon and the, the dragon princes and the and their armies are going to make a stand somewhere other than planet Earth in the first salvo of Christ's return, in the battle, the first battle of Christ's return. They're yeah. going to be defeated and thrown down to the earth where they make their last stand with the beast and his post-human armies on earth. And that is Armageddon. Dang, man. And if you don't believe that's true, we've talked about some of these things that like, give us glimpses. Like there was supposedly a war that happened in the sky on, in April of 1561 over Nuremberg. There was supposedly like this UFO war that went on and it was documented by the whole town. Everyone saw these things. So we've seen little fractions of what looks like the beginnings of this, this kinetic war. But what you're describing, I mean... It, and let me say that there is some confusion. I'm not certain if the scene in Revelation where the dragon uh, takes takes his tail and and gathers a third of the stars and throws them to the earth. I am not sure. I don't know if that references something that already happened, something or something that is going to happen. And uh, because both of those are possibilities. And and in my book, I kind of it's it, for those who've read the book, you'll probably notice I was pretty ambiguous. Uh, and in fact, I might have even ref- I might have even admitted the, the the intentional ambiguity in a footnote. I can't recall if it's the latter. And there are some people who believe that that doesn't represent Satan 
drawing a third of the angels into his rebellion or something. There's a people, scholars who don't think that that's what that means at all. I happen to believe it does, either in a, a past context or a future context. And, and if it is in a future context, then that means that the dragon's influence at the end of the age will be such that even some of those who are loyal to God now, sons of God, loyal to him now, are going to defect. So that, that tells you the influence, the power. This is not a, a, a simple wave of the hand to defeat the armies of the dragon. This is a serious kinetic war. You know, some other day we'll have to talk about, we probably already have one of the most baffling <laughs> questions in my mind is, if these angelic beings go to war, what are the stakes if you can't die? Right. I mean, what happens if you get blown up? Oh, I think they can die. I think they can die. Right. So for another, so for another blurry day, something. right? Tree of life. So clearly we're missing something here. It's either all spiritual or not spiritual at all in the way we think. Hmm. So it's one of those two. And, and I don't believe it's all spiritual because that concept really doesn't mean anything. So um, anyway, we've, it, that, that's a whole nother line of thought, but <laughs> that is a whole, that's a whole other episode. It's a whole nother yeah. cigar in the background. Well, yeah, I mean, is. I I think the hard the hardest question I have after all these episodes, Tim, is is does God have some indication that that the dragon's going to rebel from the beginning? Well, yes, I, I believe he did. Um, he creates him anyway. Y- yes, remember that this narrative is about the Son of God. If you understand fundamentally. That the whole thing, the whole show is about God's son and that it was all created for him and by him and through him, but for him and through him, then then everything fits. Why? Because the answer is it's about him and his story. This is his heroic story arc. It's not ours. It's his. Mm. We are observing it. We are playing a part in it. We are ancillary characters. It's his story. And I'm not trying to make some kind of play on the word of history here, but it is his story. (laughs) And we are observers. We are ancillary characters, which means we're side characters. We're secondary characters. And everything that happens, happens because the father loves his son and the son loves his father and glorifies wow. his father. That's why everything happens. Everything happens to the glory of God, whether it be the defection of the dragon, whatever. Everything happens to ultimately to the glory of God. Everything. Mm-hmm. Nothing falls outside of that simple, fundamental fact. I'll tell you, that's how you cross the T's. That's how you cross T's and dot That the is I's. the answer because yeah. you, you, you can't even contemplate. See, this is the thing that I often get upset about is people attempt to constrain the mind they cannot even begin to comprehend and that is the mind of god and and you cannot constrain the mind of god everything he does is for a higher purpose his ways are higher than ours as mm. i believe the psalmist said yeah, yeah. awesome Dude. thanks tim tim yeah man big time love that it's so fun to break down these things and and talk about the past, the future, and then you know, and really in practical and yet biblical terms. So, as always, we appreciate the conversation because it's. I think I think you make some really compelling arguments and theories for this. A lot of the thinking of the church and even our inside the church today is still is is, is a very medieval way of thinking about 
the spiritual realm and the supernatural and angels and the way that we that we sort of imagine or hypothesize them to be and to look and so I, I love I love unpacking this stuff with you. I think I think it's it's also very very timely to look forward. You know, in such in, in times as these, as as, you, as people say, and and so we appreciate man, we appreciate your friendship and your time and and just unpacking the future religion of apotheism mm-hmm. and what that may look like. And frankly, it fits seamlessly into to the end that we see in the Bible and the biblical narrative. So my man, if you guys haven't picked up the book yet, if you're listening, the book is Birthright. We had the privilege, the extreme privilege of being a, being able to open up the Birthright Conference this year as we're, everyone's getting back together and things are getting a little more normal here in, in Nashville. And we're grateful for that opportunity and grateful for, for your friendship. Grateful for the friend you've been to the show, um, you know, on a professional then also on very much on a personal yeah. level, Tim. So well, I appreciate you. the opportunity. You guys uh, let me come on your show and bloviate for endless hours. But um Oh yeah, but if we had cigars, it would be a proper hand, right? <laughs> all of us had them, yeah. Maybe not. But right. I all, but I also want to remind people that you know you, you talk about the conference. That conference, for those of you who are not able to make it, is available right now at the at birthrightconference.com. You can you can get it in VOD format, in other words, video on demand. Where it's basically a long term rental. When I say long term, I think it's like a year long. Or you can buy the digital download, or you can buy the DVD. All of those options are available. It was a great conference. We had a lot of fun. And I gave, I think, in my opinion, from from my own opinion, I think I gave the best presentation I've ever given at that conference. I gave two presentations that were linked together. And I addressed some current event stuff, you know, the, the, the transgender stuff, how it relates to transhumanism, and some things I've never really talked about. So I encourage people to go over to birthrightconference.com and uh, and either rent digital download or or purchase the DVD of that conference. It, it was it was a great time, and I think the, the pricing on that stuff is super reasonable. And and then of course to get my book again, I keep saying this, but I I, I know that we we delved into a lot of different stuff here in this conversation, and it got very entangled and confusing. And it's but it is all laid out in a much more linear fashion in the book. So if you feel <laughs> that you're confused then get, grab a copy of Birthright on Amazon. And I, I'm very sequential in the book. I take you from the beginning to the end. We start in a pre-Adamic context and we go all the way through Armageddon. And hopefully by the time you read that book, you'll you'll have things sorted out in your brain, at least from my perspective. And, and uh, everything I think and say is certainly not correct, but at the very least, I think it will challenge people's perspectives and cause their paradigms to to grow yeah i love that yeah dude G- game six mj utah jazz tim alvarino at the conference peak <laughs> peak performance peak i love it peak that's right and if you're out there and, you're, and this is your first episode welcome to the blurry blurry verse you've just become as my sister said a blurry ver <laughs> yeah, hey, we're all dads now hey, we're, I'm a dad now we, we could do dad jokes <laughs> that's, that's great that's right it gets weird on our show Tim and, and I think that you you give us this this framework to make sense of all the creatures that fit inside this kingdom and I appreciate you laying it out in practical terms so we can hear it and we can understand and I think it's complicated it's a complicated kingdom and the players are they're they're multi-leveled and there's there's more you have to understand you have to get out of this sort of modern rationalist 
understanding of how things are in this world. And so it's always good to kind of put the, put more layers of how the kingdom operates, what it looks like, and the Game of Thrones that we're all in and clueless about. So thanks, Tim. Well, you guys have a, you guys are, what I love about your podcast and what you guys do is you're very humble. You don't propagandize one particular view. You're not hostile to other views. You have a very wide range of people who have conflicting views, but you have such a friendly, non-hostile environment on your podcast that people just listen and they can just enjoy different perspectives without feeling like any particular perspective is being shoved down their throat. And then of course, the best thing about your podcast is the 80s nostalgia. You got a Stranger Things, <laughs> you got a Stranger Things vibe going on, and I think it's awesome. Yeah. And uh, I think you guys have tapped into something special. So you're going to continue Thanks, to grow man. like crazy. Thanks, Thanks man. We're going to put you in a Marty McFly vest if you come to BlurryCon, <laughs> and uh, you'll come out of a DeLorean. Alberino's coming. Tim's showing up in a, in a DeLorean. <laughs> yeah, we're going to do it. We're going to do it. But Tim, you're the best. Thanks for. Uh, Thanks, I'm going to show up just... riding the dragon from NeverEnding Story. <laughs> <laughs> yes, there you go. 